If you have your Bibles, and, uh, and I'm glad to see so many of you do bring your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth, uh, and we're going to uh, look at Ruth chapter 4, uh, parts of Ruth chapter 4 this morning. It's been um, uh, a few weeks as we've been working our way through this, um, just this text that God has given us. Not only is it just a beautiful story, um, but it is instruction about God's way with us and about our way of responding to God, and uh, it's helpful instruction. And so we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Ruth uh, chapter 4 this morning um, as we make our way uh, through this book. Father, we do come before you today and um, we're so thankful for uh, the privilege that we have of gathering in this free way here to worship you, to gather with a family of God who knows you and to gather with others who are maybe seeking or searching to know a little bit more about you or um, who just aren't sure why they're here, but Lord, you know why each one of us here is here this morning, and you have a reason for us being here. And uh, so as we continue now to look at your word, uh, may it be something that um, is used by you to draw us into a closer relationship with you. May it be something that serves as a warning to us about those things and those attitudes which draw us away from you. May your word be something that um, illustrates to us the rich life of blessing that awaits those who walk in a way that is worthy of you. So thanks for this word. Um, Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our words and actions do really matter to God. I have been reading another book on uh, leadership in the United States Marines, and this is a particular book on um, the training that an officer goes, undertakes in order to become a a Marine um, officer. It's called One Bullet Away. And he recounts the following scene in this book. We left the following morning on a major field exercise. I was sitting on my pack at the edge of the landing zone waiting for a helicopter when Captain Novak appeared, calling my name and three others. We scrambled over to him and he led us into the trees out of sight and hearing from the rest of the class. Gents, when you get back over there, tell the class I had to counsel you for failing the last written test. I must have looked surprised. You didn't really. I have a secret task for each of you. Your squads will be operating independently out there this week. Starting tomorrow, each of you will become progressively more withdrawn. You'll be uninvolved, uninterested, and eventually uncooperative. The missions culminate on Thursday with a night attack. Confusing is all get out. By then, you have to be in full revolt. A lieutenant asked Novak why we would be doing this. Feigning psychiatric casualties. Giving your buddies a taste of the chaos of not being able to trust one of their own. He goes on to describe how he did this and how as increasingly he did it over the next couple days, he couldn't continue any longer with that game that he was asked to play. Vijay plucked my strings, appealing to my duty and my pride. I couldn't let my friends down, couldn't be seen as the weak link. My will collapsed. My will collapsed. I like that way of saying that he finally had to do what was right. His own will gave in to the greater role of integrity that was demanded by a Marine officer. And this is the kind of integrity that I think God is looking for. He's looking for men and women who are born or who are torn up when their actions and their words betray their commander-in-chief, God. Men and women who realize the kind of spiritual chaos that ensues when God cannot trust you. 
words and actions matter. And we start in chapter 4, verse 1 of this book and read the first two verses. We read something now of a man and his word. And we recall from last week that there was a setback, though, that as he told Ruth that he would like to marry her, he also said, but there's a problem. There's a closer redeemer. And so we find now that, uh, that he is following up on his promise to settle the matter in the morning. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. And so they sat down. He had made a promise to Ruth. In the night, under pressure, to resolve this marriage issue and the issue of redemption by the morning. Did he mean it? Was he just trying to get out of an awkward situation? No, he had meant what he said. Boaz is not a man who says one thing under pressure and then another thing when the heat is off. Boaz is a man that understood that a word spoken is a word to be kept. And there is no reason to doubt that this took place that very same morning. And I don't know if Boaz had a plan when he came to the city gate. Maybe he was flying by the seat of his pants. But early in the morning, we find him sitting here at the city gate. The center of the town's activity. The place where law decisions were made. The place where business transactions were were conducted and ratified. It was a very public place. And as Boaz Boaz sat there, the, the narrator says, and behold. Now that should make us remember a few more beholds earlier in the book. This is the narrator's way of pointing to the providence of God. It's the narrator's way of saying nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by chance. You remember in in chapter 2 verse 3 that we read there that Ruth happened to come into the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Nothing happens by chance. And then as she was at that field in verse 4 of chapter 2, the narrator says, And behold, Boaz showed up. At the right time when Ruth was there, Boaz showed up. And so now here we are at the city gate, and Boaz is sitting there. Behold, this nearest redeemer shows up. Once again, this is the providence of God in ordaining the decisions and the affairs of mankind. It reminds me of the story of Esther. And uh, if you um, want to read a book that also is about the providence of God, read the book of Esther. It's a brilliant um, exposition of the way that God interacts with the physical realities of mankind. But the king um, had not been able to sleep one night. Sounds familiar here. And he had, he had uh, found out as he read his history books that there was a man named Mordecai that he hadn't rewarded for revealing an assassination plot a number of months earlier. And so he was determined that he would reward this man. And so as he got up early in the morning and he's sitting in his throne room, he says to his um, assistant there, who's in the king's courtroom right now? And we read that, that this man named Naaman had just entered into the courtroom. And Naaman was coming in to ask the king if he could kill Mordecai. And the king as the, Naaman comes in, before Naaman could say a thing, the king says to him, what do you think the king could do for a man he wants to honor? And Naaman thought, well, I'm the only man that the king wants to honor. I'm his second in command. And so he makes this elaborate presentation of what the king would do to the man he wants to honor. 
And you know, remember what the king says to him? Go and do that for Mordecai. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by chance. This wasn't a coincidence that, behold, the Redeemer came by. This was the hand of God enabling this decision to be resolved. We don't know what this man was called. If you read various translations, uh, I read from the ESV. Some of you might have the NIV. They have the rendering friend. Uh, It's not really the best rendering of the word. Some uh, suggestions include, well, such a one or hey you. Uh, The best translation that I think makes sense, and I found it in a commentator, is so-and-so. So-and-so. Come sit over here. Um, It's used uh, when, when the proper name cannot or should not be used. In other words, it's an attempt to protect the identity of the person, but you know who it is. So you might say, well, I had coffee with so-and-so yesterday. Well, you all know who you had coffee with. You're just not telling other people who it was you had coffee with. So why did he not use his name? Why does the narrator not tell us who this so-and-so is? Well, I think, in part, it's to protect him from embarrassment. Because as we go down in the story, we'll realize that this man didn't make ethical or wise decisions. Just in the same way that the rich young ruler isn't identified in the New Testament. As he walked away from God, all we know he was a man that had lots of money and he walked away from God. I think it's also, though not, he's not named, so that this contrast between Boaz and him can be more and more brought to the forefront of the story. And finally, I think he's not named because he's really irrelevant to the central theme of the story. And so the narrator doesn't want to distract us by giving us another name. And so I like the phrase, Mr. So-and-so. And and that's what I'll call him through the rest of our morning. So Boaz then had called Mr. So-and-so to sit down beside him. And he had gathered ten more elders um, from around uh, the city to gather and sit together at the city gate. These would be witnesses. These would add legal weight to any transaction or deal that was made. This nearer redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, would test the trustworthiness of Boaz. And we will find that Boaz passed the test. So a couple things that I just reflected on and wrote in the side of my notes as I thought about Boaz is first, be a person of your word. Our word matters. If you say that you'll do something, do it. If you say that you'll be somewhere, be there. What happened to the days when a man's word was his bond? Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Be a person of your word. Boaz said he would resolve the issue in the morning. He resolved the issue in the morning. And I think secondly, take time to do things right. Don't cut corners. You see, Boaz could have gone and met Mr. So-and-so out in his field. And he could have said, well, listen, buddy, let's just make a deal. You know, there's this issue going on, and let's kind of just resolve it, you and I together. Or he could have gone to his house and had a cup of tea and resolved it. Or he could have just left Mr. So-and-so out and gone and got a bunch of people and said, you know, there's there's this land that I want to buy, and I know that, that somebody else wants it, but I know he doesn't really want it, so let's just kind of make an agreement that it's my land now, and I bought it um, um, rightfully. No, that would be dishonest. That would be Boaz trying to take matters into his own hands. Boaz took the time to do things right. Before God and before man, he acted with integrity. Loved ones, the issue is not the end result. The issue is integrity and trustworthiness. 
Leave the end result to God. Do what is right. Let God determine the conclusion. So we find that Boaz was a man of his word, and he did things right. Secondly, we see a man and his words. And we have here now a second setback. The first one was that there was a, another redeemer. And now we find out that Mr. So-and-so wants the land. Verse 3 and 4, he says there, Then he said to the, near, to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. The Boaz starts by, um, and, and the Hebrew is very clear in the word order, the portion of the field belonging to our brother Elimelech, Naomi, who returned from the field of Moab, is selling. The emphasis in the text here is on the land. It's on this parcel of land that Naomi, Naomi is, is, is selling. So the word order places the emphasis on the land. Land is the issue. And there is no need to think here that Boaz is being sneaky or manipulative. There are two issues that need to be resolved at the gate that morning. And Boaz is just dealing with them one at a time. The first issue is a issue of land. And so Boaz is saying, Mr. So-and-so, we need to get this land back into the family. That's the role of a redeemer. Land in Israel was never sold indefinitely. God had made a provision, another provision, a gracious provision, that should anyone, through whatever circumstance, have to give up their land, at the very latest, in the year of Jubilee, that land would revert back to its original owner. It was a provision that ensured that no family in Israel would ever become landless. They would also always have a piece of their inheritance. Leviticus 25, 25 following says, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. And if a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return his property. But if he doesn't have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it will be released and it will be returned to his property. A little bit later, um, uh, he goes on and says, If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may redeem it. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem it himself. In other words, land was never technically sold. It was just sort of rented out. It was purchased for a time because God never intended somebody to be landless. And so the issue of Elimelech's land needed to be resolved. It couldn't be sold to somebody outside the family. And so it needed to be rented out. And so Naomi wanted to rent out her land so she would have something to live on because she was poor. And so she knew that she wouldn't lose it forever because at the year of Jubilee, it would come back to her. 
if there was a family. So Boaz apparently made Mr. So-and-so an offer he couldn't refuse. A parcel of land that apparently only came with Naomi. After all, Naomi was old. Even if she married, there was no chance that she would have children. There would never be any male heirs. This would be his land forever. A shrewd businessman would be delighted with such an offer. I will redeem it, he says. Thud. I wonder if Naomi had made her way to the city gate that morning, knowing that Boaz had committed to resolve the issue in the night. The text tells us that there were many witnesses there. Only hours before the heart of her daughter-in-law had been broken, when Boaz said there is a closer redeemer, now her heart must have sunk also when she heard the words of Mr. So-and-so, I will redeem it. So much for hope. I wonder if she thought, this is what you get for being honest? I wonder if she thought, is honesty really the best policy now? I wonder if she thought in her head, why tell the truth when nothing good comes from it? I remember uh, as a young pastor, I don't know, 20 years ago, uh, (laughs) I was young then. Uh, I was uh, at a small church plant, and I was working with another man who was sort of my mentor. He was 15, 16, 18 years older than me. We had a board decision to make, and, and um, so he had left it to me to make the appeal and, and uh, kind of present the, the, the reason for making a certain decision. But I wanted to make sure that the decision went my way. I, I wanted to go in with an impassionate plea I just didn't tell the whole story. It's not that I was lying. I was just leaving out some of the pertinent facts behind the issue. When I had finished, I thought, there, we're going to make this decision. And my co-pastor, my mentor, piped up and he says, well, I just want to give you some of the details that Paul um, just forgot. He said it in a nice way. (laughs) But I was furious with him. Discussion followed and a decision was made. And it wasn't the decision that I had hoped would be made. The next day, my friend and mentor could tell I was pretty ticked in the office. And his words were along these lines to me, and I've never forgotten them. He says, Paul, you need to tell the whole truth. You need to tell the whole truth so the best decision can be made. You don't want to manipulate the decision. You want the best decision made. And that is why there is a plurality of leaders in this church. And I've tried to do that ever since. You see, influence does carry some weight. But influence without truth is manipulation. And Boaz had great influence. He was a man of recognition. But he didn't use his influence to cover up the truth. What matters is not that we get our way, but that we find God's way. And Boaz was this man who wanted God's way, not his way. And so at the city gate, his words and actions were pleasing to God, even though it looked like things were not going to go his way. We also see, though, more of this man and his words. We read there in verse uh, 5 that then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. 
Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Mr. So-and-so, there's one more issue. It's not just about the land. It's about a dead man's name. It's about the name of Malon. The name of Malon has to be preserved. And there's a spirit that's behind a law that God has given so that God has provided that a man's name would always be preserved. Ruth the Moabite is part of the deal. Now you wonder at this point if Naomi's heart must have not just sung that Ruth had decided to come with her and persisted to come with her. Not only did the land need to be redeemed, you see, but the name of Malon needed to be continued. And this is the issue of leverit marriage. And leverit marriage is not just a biblical uh, and a Hebrew practice. It's a still a practice that even goes on today. In leverit marriage, the principle behind it is to preserve the name of a family. And in leverit marriage, the brother of a de- deceased man is obligated to marry his brother's widow. And the widow is obligated to marry her deceased husband's brother. And there are only three paces in Scripture where this is referred to. One is in Ruth, uh, or Genesis chapter 38, which is a very difficult passage of Scripture to make sense of. Another one is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10, which I'm going to read in a moment in here. And so this was the second issue. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son who she bears shall succeed to, to, name, uh, to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, here's the gate of the elders that we're already at, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off the sandal on his foot, and spit in his face. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. (laughs) And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Family matters to God. And there was a principle that God had established that a family name would never be eradicated. Now, Malon had no living brothers, but the intent of the law goes on beyond the, 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 the letter of the law because the Mr. So-and-so and Boaz were not brothers of Malon, but they were, they were cousins. They were near redeemers. And we understand that God is concerned not just about the letter of the law, but also the intent and the motive behind the law. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and what does it say there? Anyone who hates their brother or sister is guilty of what? Murder. Anyone who lusts in their heart after a woman is guilty of what? Adultery. You see, the the obedience to the law goes far beyond just obedience to the letter of the law. 
It takes into account the intent and the motive behind the law. And so Boaz was presenting to Mr. So-and-so the intent of the law, the motive behind the law, which was to perpetuate the name of a family in Israel. He thinks to himself and he says, "Hmm, I'm not going to have anything to show for my years of hard work on this land. I'm going to cultivate it, but I'm not going to eventually own it. And in fact, I'm going to have to pay for another woman and for her daughter-in-law. And in fact, if she has a, a child, then this land is going to revert back to her. And all my work has been for nothing. He thinks the cost is too high. He is not motivated by hesed or by kindness. He wants the land, but not the responsibility. Like the rich man who has too much money to follow Christ, or like the Levite who passes on the other side of the road as a man lies bloody and dialing, Mr. So-and-so considers the cost of following the law, and he says it's too high. There's a deliberate contrast, then, that's being made here between Boaz and this man. Unlike Boaz... Mr. So-and-so is unwilling to sacrifice. He is unwilling to give up his rights for the rights of another. He is unwilling to walk in the spirit and the intent of the law. And his final, his final words must have made Naomi kind of start clapping. And she, you know, you, know she, she, you sometimes you have that awkward clack and you start clapping and nobody else is clapping, so you stop. Because as he spoke, he said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Lest I impair my own inheritance. There's his motive. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. See, he doesn't like the law. He doesn't like its restrictions. He doesn't like its obligations. He is not able to see the incredible freedom that comes when we walk according to the law. Where Boaz, on the other hand, was a man who walked in the law. His life was characterized by obedience. He fully practiced gleaning in his fields because God had said, you need to provide for the poor of the land. His treatment of his workers went above and beyond what was expected. He showed kindness to Ruth and Naomi by providing for their needs and then some. He took care of Ruth in the night and guarded her reputation. He made a promise to her that he would marry her and he would make things right the next day. He had a willingness to follow the spirit and intent of the law. Sometimes, though, we look at people like that and we say, would you lighten up a little bit? You're such a legalist. You're always, you're always following God too closely. Why don't you just relax a little bit? And, and, you know, why do you always have to be so intent on doing what pleases God? Well, loved ones, Boaz was a covenant child. Boaz was a man who had the law of God written upon his heart. Boaz was a Psalm 119 man. He was a man who knew that the word of God was not only to guide his words, but his actions and his motives and his intentions. He was a Psalm 1 man. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He was a Proverbs 3 man, one who was steadfast in the way of the Lord, who trusted it not in his own understanding, but committed himself to the ways of God. He was a man who saw not the law as a restriction, but rather he saw the law as giving great freedom to one's life. Not long ago, well, it was actually a long time ago, I took a class um, with Dr. Bruce Waltke on the book of Proverbs. And he made this point a few times in the class that, that there is only freedom within form. 
that there is only freedom once you know the boundaries of issues. There is only freedom once you have settled where, where you can go and where you can't go. And he, he gave an illustration, and, and he gave about three or four, but I want to pick one from him and then two from Sinclair Ferguson. But one, he talked about, he says, there is great, um, um, marriage provides boundaries for sexual freedom. He says that is where God has designed that great freedom um, uh, um, exists uh, sexually within marriage. Outside of marriage, there is all kinds of pain, all kinds of suffering if you engage in sexual relations. Premarital sex leads to incredible hurt and guilt and shame and, and emotional suffering. And so God has provided these boundaries within which you can, um, you can partake of that freedom. And so it's by understanding the boundary that one experiences incredible freedom. It was also Sinclair Ferguson who gave a couple further examples. He says anyone learning to play the piano um, learns to differentiate between different keys and chords. Uh, Myra's got music up on the piano, and it, it gives the, the key that she's playing in it, and it gives the notes that she's to play. And we wouldn't say to Myra as she's playing, well, you're just a musical legalist. Would we? Because the music gives freedom to her ability to play. And she doesn't even have to follow the exact notes that are there because she knows the chord and she knows the progression. And so she can be free within the boundaries of that particular composition. Some of you love the game of golf. And golf is a golf of many rules. (laughs) I've broken most of them. (laughs) But, But those rules are provided so that the game can be enjoyed and so that people are protected as you play the game. And without those rules, without those boundaries, there's not the freedom of enjoying the game of golf. And so we see, loved ones, in all of life, it's the boundaries of life that provide the freedoms for which we can soar. It's the same with the Ten Commandments that God has given us. Those aren't restrictions, Those are boundaries of incredible freedom for the life of the believer, for incredible blessing for the life of believers. What does James call the law? He calls it the law of liberty. Stick that one in your head for a while and think about that. It's the law of freedom. It's the law of liberty. Why are we often so miserable? Why don't we have joy? I think it's because we're not walking in the freedoms that God has provided us. We're walking outside his boundaries. And of course we're not going to be blessed. Of course we're not going to have joy. But it's when you walk within the boundaries that God has provided that you experience joy and blessing and contentment. And so here we have Boaz, a man who walked within the boundaries of God's law He kept his relationships pure. He deals openly and honestly to the impediments to those relationships. Then he marries. Then he has children. And he truly knows the blessing of God in his life. His actions again reflect his worthy character. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your paths straight. 
Now this was the custom in former times, verse 7, in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a manner of attesting it in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. In the middle of the story, we have this little historical interruption. Because even apparently to those when this book was first written, that custom was so far removed from the actual um, practice of the day that he needed just to remind them of what was behind this sandal ceremony. And it was important, though, in the, in the situation here because um, they didn't write down things. They didn't have paper and, and, and make the kind of documents that we do so easily. And so after the deal was transacted, you needed a way to provide evidence for the deal. And so the way you got evidence was you took the guy's sandal. So that six years down the road, Mr. So-and-so had come to Boaz and said, Boaz, I want to buy that piece of land. And Boaz could run home, dig up in his closet and find the guy's sandal and say, uh-uh, I got your sandal. It was a way of confirming a legitimate business transaction that had been made. As an aside, some Christians sometimes struggle about legal positions and law courts and whether or not we need to do things um, uh, legally in the court. I think there's great um, um, encouragement in Scripture to be men and women of the law. Uh, by that I mean to use legal proceedings. We do have some warnings. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there it's not saying don't have a legal agreement. It's just saying if you're two Christians and you have a legal agreement and you can't resolve it, don't go before an unsecular court or an ungodly court. Resolve it with Christians. It's not saying anything about having legal things. It's just saying don't resolve them before non-Christians. And then in Matthew chapter 5, we have another case. And Matthew chapter 5 says nothing wrong against having a legal transaction. It just says that if that transaction is being questioned and you're being accused about it, don't go to court. Settle it before you get to court because you don't know how the court will eventually resolve it. So the Bible just gives warnings and guidelines to us. It doesn't say don't have legal agreements where you cross the T's and dot the I's. In fact, I think it's important to do your business publicly. I think it's important to have documents that confirm decisions that are made. I think it's important to have witnesses to those documents. But we need to use them in the right way. A man and his witnesses. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought the land from Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilon and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Uh, Again, Boaz is so careful to make sure there are witnesses to the transaction, to make sure everything is done up front, to make sure everything is done before people who can confirm and affirm what was decided. He starts with saying, you are witnesses. You heard me buy this land. You heard me take Naomi to be my wife. Clearly, he is wanting them to affirm and see that not only did he do those things, but that his motives were right. And so as we see at the end of this, Boaz got the girl, but not at the expense of righteousness. Not at the expense of compromise. He did it right. Boaz had a heart for God first. And we sang that song today. I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul. And I see this even in Boaz. That Boaz loved God even more than he loved Ruth. 
He had a heart for God before he had a heart for Ruth. And I was reading in one of the books this week about um, one temple gardener from Cairo. On the, on the night before his wedding, he jotted these thoughts down. That I may come near to her, draw me nearer to thee than to her. That I may know her, make me know thee more than her. That I may love her with a perfect love of a perfectly whole heart, cause me to love thee more than her and most of all. Amen and amen. He understood that you need to love God first and foremost if you were to have a real love for anyone else. Loved ones, this is Hesed again. We see being developed in Boaz again and again this, this loving kindness, this kindness that looks beyond his own interest to the interests of another. And we see this, 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 this desire to do things right. He says, you are my witnesses. He made sure that it was done publicly. He made sure that it was done in the right way. He made sure that he had witnesses. It's important to do these things. And then finally, we have another instance of men and women in their words. And it's a third setback. It's not it's stated, it's implied. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrath, and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamor bore to Judah because of his offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. I love the emphasis on community here. This is why we need the people of God. This is why we need the affirmation of the people of God. I, I, one of the things I, I so enjoy doing is marriage between um, two people who love God. Because as you do that marriage, you, you not only give them the blessing of God, but as the community is gathered around them, you, you, and I often have a portion in my service where I say, will you also now affirm your commitment to this couple who's about to be married? And so they have the blessing of God and they have the blessing of the people of God to sustain them as they begin their married life again. And so we have the community gathering around Boaz now in this deal and praying for them. And the first thing they pray for is they pray for, for Ruth. And they know what to pray for. Would you open up her womb, God? Make her be like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah were both young ladies that we read in the Bible, God opened their womb to conceive. They knew that Ruth had been unable to have children. What a prayer of blessing. Would you open the womb of Ruth so that through her can be filled this kinsman redeemer and this leverate marriage. And then they pray for Boaz. And, and, and would Boaz's name even be more renowned in the community because he is a worthy man of God. And then they pray for the offspring, that this offspring would be a, 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 an offspring of renown. What a privilege to have the people of God praying for you. And we find Roven throughout this book, and it's, a, it's an interesting um, thing, that, that I, everywhere in this book, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, we see people praying. And what it reminds me, as I was thinking of this, is we are to be people who pray at all times. 
Like it's not just the, the couple minutes in the morning before we start the day or the couple minutes at the end of the day. We pray when we're talking with people. We pray when we're meeting with our workmates. We pray when we're talking with somebody in the night. We pray when we're, when we're sending people off in the day. Prayer is to be part of our life. It's, we are to pray at all times. And what you even notice further here is that the prayers are never centered on the people praying. They're always praying for others. It's not wrong to pray for your own needs, but, but our focus ought to be praying for the needs and the concerns and the desires and the wants of other people. It's a prayer-saturated book. These events are not only events that illustrate the providence of God, but they illustrate the power of prayer as well. And as we come to an end then, I've been praying for many of you this last couple of weeks as I've been reflecting on this. Some of you I know by name. Some of you I just know by the fact that you'll be here this morning. And I want to draw us back to Mr. So-and-so as we wrap this up this morning. Because he was a man that was unable to trust God. He disappeared off the scene. You see, he was unwilling to pay the cost of obedience. He was unwilling to, to, to experience the freedom that comes from walking in God's ways. Some of you are holding back today. Some of you are holding back from giving God your full trust. Some of you are looking at decisions and you're saying, no, that won't benefit me. I can't do what God wants me to do because it doesn't suit my purposes right now. You're still only prepared to follow God so far and then that's it. The book is about leaving everything and trusting God completely. We see Ruth who left everything and trusted God completely and God blessed her richly. We see Boaz who was willing to give up everything and trusted God completely and God blessed him richly. Ruth and Boaz entered into the fullness of the blessing of God because they were willing to trust God with everything. And so my encouragement to you this morning is if you are here, you're holding back, you're unwilling to trust God, you don't want to walk in His ways, let go today. Put your full weight behind your confidence and trust in God. Know that God's ways are good. Know that God's ways are right. Know that there is incredible freedom that comes from being a man or a woman of God.